0: Welcome back to Books at Bedtime. My name is Tyler, and today we are continuing on with The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Before we get into it, I would like to mention that my Patreon is now live um, with content. I mean, it was live before, but now there's content on there uh, for patrons. So, um, just getting started with that. The Patreon-exclusive podcast will be once a week until I get enough uh, patrons to... um, meet my goal to be able to make that a daily podcast as well. And episodes on there are going to be between uh, about an hour and a half to two hours. Um, So a little longer than these ones. All right. Now, back to the book. Chapter 47, Barbs. Aside from its rocky start, my first term went fairly smoothly. I studied in the Medica learning more about the body and how to heal it. I practiced my siaru with Willem and helped him with his atorin in exchange. I joined the ranks of the artificery, studying how to blow glass, mix alloys, draw wire, inscribe metal, and sculpt stone. Most evenings I came back to Kilvin's workshop to work. I chipped casings off bronze castings, washed glassware, and ground ore for alloys. It was not deme- uh, sorry, not demeaning. It is not demanding work, but every span Kilvin gave me a copper jot, sometimes two. I suspected there was a great tally board in the method, in that methodical mind of his, carefully marking down the hours each person worked. I learned things of a less academic nature as well. Some of my Arcanum bunkmates taught me a card game called Dog's Breath. I returned the favor by giving an impromptu lesson in psychology, probability, and manual dexterity. I won almost two whole talents before they stopped inviting me back to their games. (laughs) That's terrible. (laughs) I became tight friends with Willem and Simmon. I had some few others, but not many, and none so close as Will and Sim. My swift rise to Elir alienated me from most of the other students. Whether they resented or admired me, most students held themselves apart. And then there was Ambrose. To deem us simply enemies is to lose the true flavor of our relationship. It was more like the two of us entered into a business partnership in order to more efficiently pursue our mutual interest of hating each other. (laughs) Wow, Uh, that's intense. However, even with my vendetta against Ambrose, I still had a great deal of time on my hands. Since I wasn't able to spend it in the archives, I spent some time nurturing my budding reputation. You see, my dramatic entrance to the university had made quite a stir. "'I'd made my way into the Arcanum in three days instead of the usual three terms. "'I was the youngest member by almost two years. "'I had openly defied one of the masters in front of his own class and evoluted expulsion. "'When whipped, I hadn't cried out or bled. "'On top of everything else, I had apparently managed to infuriate Master Elidin "'to such an extent that he had thrown me off the roof of the crockery.' "'I let that story circulate uncorrected, as it was preferable to the embarrassing truth.' Altogether, it was enough to start a steady stream of rumor around me, and I decided to take advantage of it. Reputation is like a sort of armor or a weapon you can brandish if need be. I decided that if I was going to be an arcanist, I might as well be a well known arcanist. So I let slip a few pieces of information. I had been admitted without a letter of recommendation. The masters had given me three talents to attend rather than make me pay a tuition. I had survived for years on the streets of Tarbine, living off my wits. I even started started a few rumors that were pure nonsense, lies so outrageous that people would repeat them despite the fact that they were obviously untrue. "'I had demon blood in me. "'I could see in the dark. "'I only slept an hour each night when the moon was full. "'I would talk in my sleep, "'speaking a strange language no one could understand. "'Basil, my former bunkmate from the Muse, "'helped me start these rumors. "'I would make up the stories. "'He would tell a few people. "'Then together we would watch them spread like a fire in a field.' It was an amusing hobby, but my ongoing feud with Ambrose added to my reputation more than anything else. Everyone was stunned that I dared openly defy a powerful noble's firstborn son. We had several dramatic encounters that first term. I won't bore you with the details. We'd cross paths, and he would make some offhand comment, loud enough for everyone in the room to hear, or he would sneer at me under the guise of a compliment. You must tell me who cuts your hair. Anyone with a lick of common sense knew how to deal with arrogant nobility. The tailor I had terrorized back in Tarbine knew what to do. You take your lumps, duck your head, and get the whole thing over as quickly as possible. But I always fought back, and while Ambrose was intelligent and reasonably well-spoken, he was no match for my trooper's tongue. I had been raised on the stage, and my sharp rue wits ensured that I got the better of our exchanges." Still, Ambrose continued to seek me out, like a dog too stupid to avoid a porcupine. He would snap at me and leave with a face full of barbs, and each time we parted we ways, we hated each other just a little more. People noticed, and by the end of the term, I had a reputation for reckless bravery. The truth is, I was merely fearless. There's a difference, you see. In Tarbin, I'd learned real fear. I feared hunger, pneumonia, Guards with hobnail boots, older boys with bottle-glass knives. Confronting Ambrose required no real bravery on my part. I simply couldn't muster any fear of him. I saw him as a puffed-up clown. I thought he was harmless. I was a fool. I mean, we have established that before, but anyway. Uh, 48. Interlude. A silence of a different kind. Bast sat in the waystone Inn and tried to keep his hands motionless in his lap, He had counted fifteen breaths since Kvoth had spoken last, and the innocent silence that had gathered like a clear pool around the three men was beginning to darken into a silence of a different kind. Bast took another breath, sixteen, and braced himself against the moment he feared would come. It would not be to Bast's credit to say that he was afraid of nothing, as only fools and priests are never afraid. But it is true that very few things unnerved him. Heights, for instance, he didn't care for very much, and the great summer storms that came through these parts that blackened the sky and tore up deep-rooted oaks made him feel uncomfortably small and helpless. But when you came down to it, nothing really frightened him, not storms, not tall ladders, not even the scrail. Bast was brave by being largely fearless, Nothing would turn him pale, or if it did, he didn't stay pale for very long. Oh, he certainly didn't relish the thought of someone hurting him, stabbing him with bitter iron, searing him with hot coals, that sort of thing. But just because he didn't like the thought of his blood on the outside didn't mean he was really afraid of those things. He just didn't want them to happen. To really fear something, you have to dwell on it. And since there was nothing that preyed on Bast's waking mind in this fashion, There was nothing his heart truly feared. But hearts can change. Ten years ago he had lost his grip climbing a tall renal tree to pick a fruit for a girl he fancied. After he slipped, he had hung for a long minute, head down before falling. In that long minute, a small fear rooted inside him and had stayed with him ever since. In the same way, Bast had learned a new fear of late. A year ago he had been fearless, as any sane man can hope to be. But now Bast feared silence. Not the ordinary silence that came from a simple absence of things moving about and making noise. Bast feared the deep, weary silence that gathered around his master at times. Like an invisible shroud, Bast breathed in again. Seventeen. He fought not to wring his hands as he waited for the deep silence to invade the room. He waited for it to crystallize and show its teeth on the edges of the cool quiet that had pooled in the waystone. He knew how it came, like the frost that bleeds out of the winter ground, hardening the clear water that an early thaw leaves in wagon ruts. But before Bast could draw another breath, Kvoth straightened in his chair and made a motion for Chronicler to lay down his pen. Best nearly wept as he sensed the silence scatter like a dark bird startled into flight. Kvothe gave a sigh that hovered between annoyance and resignation. I will admit, he said, that I am not sure how to approach the next part of the story. Afraid to let the silence stretch for too long, Best chirruped. Why don't you simply talk about things... Sorry, why don't you simply talk about... What is most important first? Then you can go back and touch on other things if you need to. As if it were as simple as that, Quoth said sharply. What is most important, my magic or my music, my triumphs or my follies? Bast flushed a deep crimson and bit his lips. Quoth let out his breath in a sudden rush. I'm sorry, Bast. It's good advice, as all of your seemingly inane advice turns out to be— he pushed his hair his not his hair, he pushed his chair back from the table but before we continue the real world has certain calls on me that i can no longer ignore if you will please excuse me for a moment ah he has to go to the bathroom <laughs> ah yes the call of nature uh, okay anyway uh, chronicler and bast stood as well stretching their legs and attending to their calls of their own Bast lit the lamps, Kvoth produced more cheese and bread and hard-spiced sausage. They ate, and some small effort was made at polite conversation, but their minds were elsewhere, dwelling on the story. Bast ate half of everything. Chronicler accounted for a sizable, though more modest, amount. Kvoth had a bite or two before he spoke. Onward, then. Music and magic, triumph and folly. Think now. What does our story need? What vital element is it lacking? Women, Reshi. Bast said immediately. There's a real paucity of women. Quoth smiled. Not women, Bast. A woman. The woman. Quoth looked at Chronicler. You have heard bits and pieces, I don't doubt. I will tell you the truth of her, though I fear I may not be equal to the challenge. Chronicler picked up his pen, but before he could dip it, Quoth held up a hand. Let me say one thing before I start. I have told stories in the past, painted pictures with words, told hard lies and harder truths. Once I sang colors to a blind man. Seven hours I played, but at the end he said he saw them, green and red and gold. That, I think, was easier than this. Trying to make you understand her with nothing more than words, you have never seen her, never heard her voice. You cannot know both motioned for Chronicler to pick up his pen, but still I will try. She is in the wings now, waiting for her cue. Let us set the stage for her arrival. Chapter 49 The Nature of Wild Things As with all truly wild things, care is necessary when making your approach. Stealth is useless. Wild things recognize stealth for what it is, a lie and a trap. While wild things might play games of stealth, in doing so may even occasionally fall prey to stealth. They are never truly caught by it. So, with slow care, rather than stealth, we must approach the subject of a certain woman. Her wildness is of such a degree. I fear approaching her too quickly, even in a story. Should I move recklessly, I might startle even the idea of her into sudden flight so in the name of slow care I will speak of how I met her, and to do that I must speak of events that brought me quite unwillingly across the river and into Imre. I finished my first term with three silver talents and a single jot. Not long ago it would have seemed like all the money in the world to me. Now I hoped it would be enough for one more term's tuition and a bunk in the mews. The last span of every term at university was reserved for admissions exams. Classes were cancelled, and the masters spent several hours of each day conducting examinations. Your next term's tuition was based on your performance. A lottery determined when your next exam would be. A great deal hung on the brief interview. Missing a few questions could easily double your tuition. Because of this, slots later in the span were highly prized, as they gave students more time to study and prepare. There was a vigorous trade in appointment times after the lottery was held. Money and favors were bartered as everyone vied for a time that suited them. I was lucky enough to draw a mid-morning hour on Sendling, the last day of admissions. If I'd wanted to, I could have sold my slot, but I preferred to take the extra time to study. I knew my performance would have to be brilliant, as several of the masters were now less than impressed by me. My previous trick of spying was out of the question. I now knew it was grounds for expulsion, and I couldn't risk that. Despite the long days I spent studying with Will and Sim, admissions were difficult. I breezed through many of the questions, but Hem was openly hostile, asking questions with more than one answer so that nothing I said could be correct. Brander was difficult as well. Clearly helping Hem carry his grudge. Loren was unreadable, but I sensed his disapproval rather than seeing it on his face. Afterward I fidgeted while the masters discussed my tuition. Voices were calm and muted at first, then became somewhat louder. Eventually Kilvin stood and shook a finger at Hem while shouting and pounding the table with his other hand. Hem maintained more composure than I would have if I had been faced with... with twenty stone of furious, bellowing artificer. After the Chancellor managed to regain control of things, I was called forward and given my receipt. Illyric Voth, summer term, tuition, three talents, nine jots, seven... What is that? Silver talents, copper jots, maybe they are iron drabs? That's F.E. Hmm. Three talents, nine jots, seven i I'm not sure what Um, eight jots more than I had. As I walked out of the master's hall, I ignored the sinking feeling in my gut and tried to think of a way I could lay hands on more money by tomorrow noon. I made a brief stop at 2 sealedish money money-changers on this side of the river, as I suspected they wouldn't lend me a thin shim. While I wasn't surprised, the experience was sobering, reminding me again of how different I was from the other students.' They had families paying their tuition, granting them allowances to cover their living expenses. They had reputable names they could borrow against in a pinch. They had possessions they could pawn or sell. If worse came to worst, they had homes to return to. I had none of these things. If I couldn't come up with eight more jots for tuition, I had nowhere in the world I could go. Borrowing from a friend seemed like the simplest option, but I valued my handful of friends too much to risk losing them over money. As my father used to say, there are two sure ways to lose a friend. One is to borrow, the other to lend. Besides, I did my best to keep my desperate poverty to myself. Pride is a foolish thing, but it is a powerful force. I wouldn't ask for money except as my very last resort. I briefly considered trying to cut-purse the money, but I knew it was a bad idea. If I were caught with my hand in someone's pocket, I would get more than a cuff round the head. At best, I'd be jailed and forced to stand against the iron law. At worst, I'd end up on the horns and expelled for conduct unbecoming a member of the Arcanum. I couldn't risk it. I needed a Galet, one of the dangerous men who lend money to desperate people. "'You might have heard them referred to romantically as copper hawks, "'but more often they're referred to as shimgalls or lets. "'Regardless of the name, they exist everywhere. "'The hard part is finding them. "'They tend to be rather secretive, as their business is semi-legal at best. "'But living in Tarbine had taught me a thing or two. "'I spent a couple of hours visiting the seedier taverns around the university, "'making casual conversations.' asking casual questions. Then I visited a pawn shop called The Bent Penny, and asked a few more pointed questions. Finally I learned where I needed to go, over the river, to Imre. Chapter 50 Negotiations Imre lay a little over two miles from the university, on the eastern side of the Omethi River. Since it was a mere two days in fast coach from Tarbine, a great many wealthy nobles, politicians, and courtiers made their homes there. It was conveniently close to the governing hub of the commonwealth, while being a comfortable distance from the smell of rotten fish, hot tar, and the vomit of drunken sailors. Imre was a haven for the arts, there were musicians, dramatists, sculptors, dancers, and the practitioners of a hundred other smaller arts, even the lowest art of all—poetry. Performers came because Imre offered what every artist needs most—an appreciative, affluent audience. Imre also benefited by its proximity to the university. Access to plumbing and sympathy lamps improved the quality of the town's air. Quality glass was easy to come by, so windows and mirrors were commonplace eyeglasses and other round l- uh, sorry not round other ground lenses, while expensive were readily available. despite this, there was little love lost between the two towns. most of Imre's citizens did not like the thought of a thousand minds tinkering with dark forces better left alone. Listening to the average citizen speak, it was easy to forget that this part of the world had not seen an arcanist burned for nearly three hundred years. To be fair, it should be mentioned that the university had a vague contempt for Imre's populace, too. Viewing them as self-indulgent and decadent, the arts that were viewed so highly in Imre were seen as frivolous by those at the university. Often students who quit university were said to have gone over the river, the implication being that my, ah, yeah, the implication being that minds that were too weak for academia had to settle for tinkering with the arts. And both sides of the river were, ultimately, hypocrites. University students complained about frivolous musicians and fluff actors then lined up to pay for performances. Imre's population griped about unnatural arts being practiced two miles away, but when an aqueduct collapsed or someone fell suddenly sick, they were quick to call on engineers and doctors trained at the university. All in all, it was a long-standing and uneasy truce, where both sides complained while maintaining a grudging tolerance. Those people did have their uses, after all. You just wouldn't want your daughter marrying one. Since Imre was such a haven for music and drama, you might think I spent a great deal of time there. But nothing could be further from the truth. I had been there only once— Willem and Simon had taken me to an inn, where a trio of skilled musicians played. Lute, flute, and drum. I bought a short beer for a halfpenny and relaxed, fully intending to enjoy an evening with my friends. But I couldn't. Bare minutes after the music started, I practically fled the room. I doubt very much she'll be able to understand why, but I suppose I have to explain if things are to make any sense at all. I couldn't stand being near music and not be a part of it. It was like watching the woman you love bedding down with another man. No, not really. It was like... It was like the sweet eaters I'd seen in Tarbine. Denner resin was highly illegal, of course, but that didn't matter in most parts of the city. The resin was sold wrapped in waxy paper, like a sucking candy or a toffee. Chewing it filled you with euphoria, bliss, contentment, but after a few hours you were shaking, filled with a desperate hunger for more, and that hunger grew worse the longer you used it. Once I saw tar—sorry, once in Tarbin, I saw a young girl, no more than sixteen, with the telltale hollow eyes and unnaturally white teeth of the hopelessly addicted. She was begging. She was begging a sailor for a suite, which he held tauntingly out of reach. He told her it was hers if she stripped naked and danced for him right there in the street. She did, not caring who might be watching, not caring that it was nearly midwinter and she stood in four inches of snow. She pulled off her clothes and danced desperately, her thin limbs pale and shaking, her movements pathetic and jerky. Then, when the sailor laughed and shook his head, She fell to her knees in the snow, begging and weeping, clutching frantically at his legs, promising him anything, anything. That is how I felt watching the musicians play. I couldn't stand it. The everyday lack of my music was like a toothache I had grown used to. I could live with it. But having what I wanted dangled in front of me was more than I could bear. So I avoided Imre until the problem of my second term's tuition forced me back across the river. I had learned that Devi was the person anyone could ask for a loan, no matter how desperate the circumstances. So I crossed the Omethi by Stonebridge and made my way to Imre. Devi's place of business was through an alley and up a narrow balcony staircase behind a butcher's shop. This part of Imre reminded me of Waterside in Tarbine. The cloying smell of rancid fat from the butcher's shop below made me thankful for the cool autumn breeze. I hesitated in front of the heavy door, looking down into the alley. I was about to become involved in dangerous business. A sealedish moneylender could take you to to court if you didn't repay your loan. A Gaelic would simply have you beaten or robbed or both. This was not smart. I was playing with fire. But I didn't have any better options. I took a deep breath, squared my shoulders, and knocked on the door. I wiped my sweaty palms against my cloak, hoping to keep them reasonably dry for when I shook Devi's hand. I had learned in Tarbine that the best way to deal with this type of man was to act with confidence and self-assurance. They were in the business of taking advantage of other people's weakness. I heard the sound of a heavy bolt being drawn back. Then the door opened, revealing a young girl with straight strawberry-blonde hair framing a pixie-like face. She smiled at me, cute as a new button. Yes? I'm looking for Debbie, I said. You've found her, she said easily. Come on in. I stepped inside, and she closed the door behind her, sliding the iron bolt home. The room was windowless but well lit, and filled with the scent of lavender, a welcome change from the smell of the alley. There were hangings on the walls, but the only real furniture was a small desk, a bookshelf, and a large canopy bed with the curtains drawn around it. Please, she said, gesturing to the desk, have a seat. She settled herself behind the desk, folding her hands across the top. The way she carried herself made me rethink her age. I'd misjudged her because of her small size, but even so, she couldn't be much older than her early twenties. Hardly what I had expected to find. Devi blinked prettily at me. I need a loan, I said. How about your name first? She smiled. You already know mine. Gvoth. Really? She arched an eyebrow. I've heard a thing or two about you. She looked me up and down. Thought you'd be taller. I could say the same. I was caught off-balance by the situation. Oh, let's see. He just thinks. I'm saying I I could say the same. I was caught off-balance by the situation. I'd been ready for a muscular thug and negotiations filled with thinly-veiled threats and bravado. I didn't know what to make of this smiling waif. What have you heard? I asked to fill the silence. Nothing bad, I hope. Good and bad, she grinned, but nothing boring. I folded my hands to keep from fidgeting. So how exactly do we do this? Not much for banter, are you? She said, giving a brief disappointed sigh. Fair enough. Straight to business. How much do you need? Only about a talent. I said, eight jots, actually. She shook her head seriously, her strawberry-blonde hair swinging back and forth. "'I can't do that, I'm afraid. "'It's not worth my while to make half penny loans,' I frowned. "'How much is worth your while?' Four talents,' she said. "'That's the minimum. "'And the interest? Fifty percent every two months. "'So if you're looking to borrow as little as possible, "'it'll be two talents at the end of the term. "'You can pay off the whole debt for six, if you like, "'but until I get all the principal back, "'it's two talents every term.' "'I nodded, not terribly surprised.' It was roughly four times what even the most avaricious moneylender would charge. But I'm paying interest on money I don't really need. No, she said, meeting my eyes seriously. You're paying interest on money you borrowed. That's the deal. How about two talents, I said. Then at the end, Devi waved her hands, cutting me off. We aren't bargaining here. I'm just informing you as to the conditions of the loan. She smiled apologetically. I'm sorry I didn't make that clear from the beginning. I looked at her. The set of her shoulders, the way she met my eyes. Okay, I said, resigned, where do I sign? She gave me a slightly puzzled look, her forehead furrowing slightly. No need to sign anything. She opened a drawer and pulled out a small brown bottle with a glass stopper. She laid a long pin next to it on the desk. Just a little blood. I sat frozen in my chair, my arms at my sides. Don't worry, she reassured me. The pin's clean. I only need about three good drops. I finally found my voice. You got to be kidding, Devy cocked her head to one side, a tiny smile curling one edge of her mouth. You didn't know, she said, surprised. It's rare that anyone comes here without knowing the whole story. I can't believe anyone actually. I stalled at a loss for words. "'Not every does,' she said. "'I usually do business with students and ex-students. "'Folk on this side of the river would think I was some sort of witch or demon "'or some nonsense like that. "'Members of the Arcanum know exactly why I want blood "'and what I can do with it.' "'You're a member of the Arcanum, too?' "'Former,' she said, her smile fading a, lit- a little. "'I made Rilar before I left. "'I know enough so that with a little blood you can never hide from me.' I can douse you out anywhere. Among other things, I said incredulously, thinking of the wax moment I'd made of hem at the beginning of the term. That was just with hair. Blood was much more effective at creating a link. You could kill me. She gave me a frank look. "'You're awfully thick to be the Arcanum's bright new star. "'Think it through. "'Would I stay in business if I made a habit of malfeasance?' "'The masters know about this?' "'She laughed. "'God's body, of course not. "'Neither does the constable, the bishop, or my mother,' "'she pointed to her chest, then to me. "'I know, and you know. "'That's usually enough to ensure a good working relationship "'between the two of us.' "'What about unusually?' I asked. "'What if I don't have your money at the end of the term? "'What then?' She spread her hands and shrugged carelessly. Then we work something out between the two of us, like rational people. Maybe you work for me, tell me secrets, do me favors. She smiled and gave me a slow, lecherous looking over, laughing at my discomfiture. If worse comes to worse, you could end up being extraordinarily, and you end up being extraordinarily uncooperative, I could probably sell your blood to someone to recover my loss. Everyone has enemies. She she shrugged easily, but I've never had things descend to that level. The threat is usually enough to keep people in line. She looked at the expression on my face, and her shoulders slumped a little. Come on now, she said gently. You came here expecting some thick-necked gay with scarred knuckles. You were ready to make a deal with someone ready to beat twelve distinct colors of hell out of you if you were a day late. My way is better. Simpler. "'This is insane,' I said, getting to my feet. "'Absolutely not.' "'Devi's cheerful expression faded. "'Get a hold of yourself,' she said, plainly growing exasperated. "'You're acting like some farmer who thinks I'm trying to buy his soul. "'It's just a little blood, so I can keep tabs on you. "'It's collateral.' "'She made a calming gesture with both hands, as if smoothing the air. "'Fine, I'll tell you what. "'I'll let you borrow half the minimum,' she looked at me expectantly. "'Two talents. "'Does that make it easier?' No, I said. I'm sorry I ha- to have wasted your time, but I can't do it. Are there any other Galets around? Of course, she said coolly. But I don't feel particularly inclined to give out that sort of information. She tilted her head quizzically. By the way, today's sandling, isn't it? Don't you need your tuition by noon tomorrow? I'll find them on my own, then, I snapped. I'm sure you will, clever boy like you, Devy waved me away with the back of her hand. Feel free to let yourself out. Think fond thoughts of Devi in two months' time when some thug is kicking the teeth out of your pretty little head. After leaving Devy's, I paced the streets of Imre, restless and irritated, uh, trying to get my thoughts in order, trying to think of a way around my problem. I had a decent chance of paying off the two-talent loan. I hoped to move up to the ranks in... Sorry, I hoped to move up the ranks in the fishery soon. Once I was allowed to pursue my own projects, I could start earning real money. All I needed was to stay in classes long enough. It was just a matter of time. That's really what I was borrowing. Time. One more term. Who knew what opportunities might present themselves in the next two months? But even as I tried to talk myself into it, I knew the truth. It was a bad idea. It was begging for trouble. I would swallow my pride and see if Will or Sim or Sovoy could lend me the eight jots if needed. I sighed, resigning myself to a term of sleeping outside and scavenging meals where I could find them. At least it couldn't be worse than my time in Tarbine. I was just about to head back to the university, when my restless pacing took me by a pawn shop's window. I felt the old ache in my fingers. How much for a, for the seven-string lute, I asked. To this day I do not remember actually entering the store. Four talents, even, the owner said brightly. I guessed he was new to the job or drunk. Pawnbrokers are never cheerful, not even in rich cities like Imre. Ah, I said, not bothering to hide my disappointment. Could I take a look at it? He handed it over. It wasn't much to look at. The grain of the wood was uneven, the varnish rough and scratched. Its frets were made of gut and badly in need of replacing. But that was of little concern to me, as I typically played fretless anyway. The bowl was rosewood, so the sound of it wouldn't be terribly subtle. But on the other hand, rosewood would carry better in a crowded tap room. Cutting through the murmur of idle conversation, I tapped the bowl with a finger, and gave, and it gave off a resonant hum. Solid, but not pretty. I began to tune it so I would have an excuse to hold it a while longer. I might be able to go as low as three and five, the man behind the counter said. My ears perked up as I heard something in its tone. Desperation it occurred to me that an ugly used lute might not sell very well in a city full of nobility and prosperous musicians i shook my head the strings are old actually they were fine but i hoped he didn't know that true he said reassuring me of his ignorance but strings are cheap i suppose i said doubtfully with a deliberate plan with a deliberate plan i set Each of the strings just a hair out of tune with the others. I struck a chord and listened to the grating sound. I gave the lute's neck a sour, speculative look. I think the neck might be cracked. I strummed a minor chord that sounded even less appealing. Does that sound cracked to you? I strummed it again, harder. Three and two, he asked, hopefully. It's not for me, I said, as if correcting him. It's for my little brother. The little The little bastard won't leave mine alone. I strummed again and grimaced. I may not like the spirit very much, but I'm not cruel enough to buy him a lute with a sour neck. I paused significantly. When nothing was forthcoming, I prompted him. Not for three and two. Three even? he said hopefully. To all appearances, I held the lute casually, carelessly but in my heart i was clutching it with a white-knuckled fierceness i cannot hope for you to understand this when the chandrian killed my troop they destroyed every piece of family and home i had ever known but in some ways it had it, it had been worse when my father's lute was broken in tarbine it had been like losing a limb an eye a vital organ without my music i had wandered to tarbine for years half alive like a crippled veteran or one of the walking dead yeah let me just pause here for a moment like for people who really love music losing music is like not being able to breathe having a having your breath held and just never quite being it's like have you ever had to yawn and just not quite been able to do it like there's just some like you can't you can't make it happen and you just have to you just have to go on with that until eventually you are able to yawn but like just you're never able to just feel like you get a satisfactory breath it's like that like you like you can't quite breathe all the way in See. Listen, I said to him frankly, I've got two and two for you, I pulled out my purse. You can take it, or this ugly thing can gather dust on a high shelf for the next ten years. I met his eye, careful to keep my face from showing how badly I needed it. I would do anything to keep this loot. I would dance naked in the snow, I would clutch at his legs, shaking and frantic, promising him anything, anything. I counted out two talents and two jots onto the counter between us, nearly all of the money I had saved for this term's tuition. Each coin made a hard click as I pressed it to the table. He gave me a long look, measuring me. I clicked down one more jot and waited. And waited. When he finally reached out his hand for the money, his haggard expression was the same one I was used to seeing on pawnbroker's faces. "'Devi opened the door and smiled. "'Well, now, I honestly didn't think I'd see you again. "'Come in,' she bolted the door behind me and walked over to the desk. "'I can't say I'm disappointed, though.' "'She looked over her shoulder and flashed her impish smile. "'I was looking forward to doing a little business with you,' she sat down. "'So, two talents, then?' Four would be better, actually,' I said, "'just enough for me to afford tuition and a bunk in the mews. "'I could sleep outside in the wind and rain.' My lute deserved better. Wonderful, she said as she pulled out the bottle and pin. I needed the tips of my fingers intact, so I pricked the back of my hand and let three drops of blood slowly gather and fall into the small brown bottle. I held it out to Devi. Go ahead and drop the pin in there, too. I did. Devy swabbed the bottle's stopper with a clear substance and slid it into the mouth of the bottle. "A clever little adhesive from your friends over the river," she explained. "This way I can't open the bottle without breaking it. When you pay off your debt, you get it back intact and sleep safe, knowing I haven't kept any for myself. Unless you have the solvent," I pointed out. Debby gave me a pointed look. "You're not big on trust, are you?" she rum- rummaged around in the drawer brought out some sealing-wax, and began to warm it over the lamp on her desk. "'I don't suppose you have a seal or a ring or anything like that?' she asked as she smeared the wax across the top of the bottle's stopper. "'If I had jewelry to sell, I wouldn't be here,' I said frankly, and pressed my thumb into the wax. It left a recognizable print. But that should do.' Debbie etched a number on the side of the bottle with a diamond stylus, then brought out a slip of paper, she wrote for a moment, then fanned it with a hand, waiting for it to dry. "'You can take this to any money-lender on either side of the river,' she said cheerfully, as she handed it to me. Pleasure doing, "'Pleasure doing business with you. Don't be a stranger.' I headed back to the university with money in my purse, and the comforting weight of the lute-strap hanging from my shoulder. It was second-hand, ugly, and had cost me dearly in money, blood, and peace of mind. I loved it like a child, like breathing, like my own right hand. Let's see. Well, we've got time for the next chapter. 51. At the beginning of my second term, Kilvin gave me permission to study sigildry. This raised a few eyebrows, but none in the fishery where I would proven myself to be a hard worker and a dedicated student. Sigildry, simply put, is a set of tools for channeling forces, like sympathy made solid. For example, if you engraved one brick with the rune Ule and another with the rune Dok, the two runes would cause the bricks to cling to each other as if mortared in place. But it's not as simple as that. What really happens is the two runes tear the bricks apart with the strength of their attraction. To prevent this, you have to add the rune Aru to each of the bricks, Aru is the rune for clay, and it makes the two pieces of clay cling to each other, solving your problem. Except that Aru and Dok don't fit together. They're the wrong shape. To get them to fit, you have to add a few linking runes, Gea and Te. Then, for balance, you have to add Gea and Te to the other brick, too, then the bricks cling to each other without breaking. But only if the bricks are made out of clay. Most bricks aren't. So generally, it's better to... Um, It's a better idea to mix iron into the ceramic of the brick before it is fired. Of course, that means you have to use fair instead of aru. Then you have to switch te and gea, so the ends come together properly. As you can see, mortar is a simpler and more reliable route for holding bricks together. I studied my sigil tree under Kemar. The scarred, one-eyed man was Kilvin's gatekeeper. Only after you were able to prove your firm grasp of sigildry to him could you move on to a loose apprenticeship with one of the more experienced artificers. You assisted them with their projects, and in return they showed you the finer points of the craft. There were one hundred ninety-seven runes. It was like learning a new language, except there were nearly two hundred unfamiliar letters. And you had to invent your own words a lot of the time. Most students took at least a month of study before Kamar judged them to be ready to move on. Some students took an entire term. Start to finish, it took me seven days. How? First, I was driven. Other students could afford to stroll through their studies. Their parents or patrons would cover the expense. I, on the other hand, needed to climb the ranks in the fishery quickly so I could earn money working on my own projects. Tuition wasn't even my first priority anymore. Debbie was. Second, I was brilliant. Not just your run-of-the-mill brilliance, either. I was extraordinarily brilliant. Lastly, I was lucky. Plain and simple. I stepped across the patchwork rooftops of Mainz with my loot slung across my back. It was a dim, cloudy twilight, but I knew my way around now. I kept to the tar and tin, knowing that red tiles or gray slate meant made for treacherous footing. At some point in the remodeling of Mainz, one of the courtyards had become completely isolated. It could only be accessed by clambering through a high window in one of the lecture halls, or by climbing down a gnarled apple tree, if you happened to be on the roof. I came here to practice my lute. My bunk in Meuse was not convenient, not only was music viewed as frivolous on this side of the river, but I would only make more enemies if playing while my bunkmates tried to sleep or study. So I came here. It was perfect, secluded, and practically on my doorstep. The hedges had gone wild, and the lawn was a riot of weeds and flowering plants. But there was a bench under the apple tree that was perfectly suited to my needs. Usually I came late at night, when mains was locked and abandoned. But today was Thedon, which meant that if I ate dinner quickly, I had nearly an hour between Elksadal's class and my work in the fishery, plenty of time for some practice. However, when I reached the courtyard tonight, I saw lights through the windows. Brander's lecture was running late today, so I stayed on the rooftop. The windows to the lecture hall were shut, so there wasn't much chance of my being overheard. I put my back to a nearby chimney and began to play. After about ten minutes the lights went out, but I decided to stay where I was rather than waste time climbing down. I was halfway through Ten Tap Tim when the sun slipped out from behind the clouds. Golden light covered the rooftop, spilling over the edge of the roof into a thin slice of the courtyard below. That's when I heard the noise. A sudden rustling like a startled animal, down in the courtyard. But then there was something else, a noise unlike anything a squirrel or rabbit would make in the hedge. It was a hard noise, a vaguely metallic thud, as if someone had dropped a heavy bar of iron. I stopped playing, the half-finished melody still running through my head. Was another student down there listening? I put my lute back in its case before I made my way over to the lip of the roof and looked down. I couldn't see through the thick hedge that covered most of the eastern edge of the courtyard. Had a student climbed through the window? The sunset was fading quickly, and by the time I made it down the apple tree most of the courtyard lay in shadow. I could see from here that the high window was closed. No one had come in that way. Even though it was quickly growing dark, curiosity won over caution, and I made my way into the hedge. There was quite a lot of space in there. Portions of the hedge were nearly hollow. A green shell of living branches, leaving enough room to crouch comfortably. I made note of the place as a good space for sleeping if I didn't have enough money for a bunk in the Meuse next term. Even in the fading light, I could see I was the only one there. There wasn't any... There wasn't room for anything bigger than a rabbit to hide. In the dim light I couldn't spot anything that could have made the metallic noise either. Humming the catchy chorus of ten-tapped him, I crawled through to the other end of the hedge. Only when I came through the other side did I notice the drainage gate. I'd seen similar ones scattered throughout the university, but this one was older and larger. In fact, the opening might be be large enough for a person to fit through, if the grate were removed. Hesitantly, I curled a hand around one of the cool metal bars and pulled. The heavy gate pivoted on a hinge and came up about three inches before stopping. In the dim light, I couldn't tell why it wouldn't go any further. I pulled harder, but couldn't budge it. Finally, I gave up and dropped it back into place. It made a hard noise, vaguely metallic, like Someone had dropped a heavy bar of iron. Then my fingers felt something behind, uh, felt something that my eyes missed—a maze of grooves etching the surface of the bars. I looked closer and recognized some of the runes I was learning under Camar, Ula and Dok. Then something clicked in my head—the chorus of Ten Tap Tim. "'suddenly fit together with the runes I'd been studying under Camar for the last handful of days. "'Ul and Dok are both for binding, Re for seeking, Kel for finding, "'Gae, Ki, Te, Loc, Pes in water, Res in lo- rock.' "'Before I could go any further, sixth bell struck. "'The sound startled me from my reverie, but when I reached out to study myself, "'my hand didn't come to rest on leaves and dirt. "'It touched something round and hard and smooth.' A green apple. I emerged from the hedge and made my way to the northwest corner where the apple tree stood. No apples were on the ground. It was too early in the year for that. What's more, the iron grate was on the opposite side of the small courtyard. It couldn't have rolled that far. It must have been carried. Unsure of what to think, but knowing I was late for my evening shift in the fishery, I climbed the apple-tree, gathered up my lute, and hurried to Kilvan's shop. Later that night I fit the rest of the runes to music. It took a few hours, but when I was done it was like having a reference sheet in my head. The next day Camar put me through an extensive two-hour examination, which I passed. For the next stage of my education in the fishery I was apprenticed to Monet. The old wild-haired student I had met during my first days at the university. Monet, had been attending the university for nearly thirty years, and everyone knew him as the Eternal Illyre. But despite the fact that we held the same rank, Monet had more hands-on experience in the fishery than any dozen higher-ranking students combined. Monet was patient and considerate. In fact, he reminded me of my old teacher, Apenthee, Except Abanthi had wandered the world like a restless tinker, and it was common knowledge that Monat desired nothing more than to stay at the university for the rest of his life if he could manage it. Monat started small, teaching me simple formula, of the sort required for twice-tough glass and heat funnels. Under his tutelage, I learned artificing quickly—oh, sorry, as quickly as I learned everything, and it wasn't long before we worked our way up to more complex projects like heat-eaters and sympathy lamps. Truly high-level artificing, such as sympathy clocks or gear winds, were still beyond my reach, but I knew that it was just a matter of time. Unfortunately, time was proving to be in short supply. Dun-dun-dun! What does that mean? Unfortunately, that is where we must stop tonight. I know, I know, but you already got a few chapters, so you'll just have to make do. Well, everyone, thanks for joining um, this episode of Books at Bedtime. And remember, the Patreon is now live, so please go check that out. Um, Oh, uh, I guess I should mention that uh, since... It's just started, and I don't have any patrons yet to suggest books or stories. I am reading The Lightning Thief by Rick Riordan on that podcast. Good night, everyone.